Good morning. I mean, good evening. I want to say that good morning, you know. Um, let's pray as we get started. Dear God, I ask that you would come with us tonight. I pray that we draw all of our hearts um, closer to you. I would see that you are um, so beautiful and worth our worship and our praise. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So, uh, thank you guys for, for reading. And also, thank you for the, the worship team. Um, those songs are, are perfect. It's like I picked them out, but I didn't. Hold on a second. Um, so, here's a question for you. If you knew that you were going to die in a couple of days, how would you spend your last night? Uh, some of us might have some kind of crazy ideas. Maybe don't say them out loud. <laughs> um, some of us might say, I'm going to have a big a big party, a big feast with all my closest friends. And in some ways, that's exactly what Jesus did. Um, he does that but giving it many, many layers of meaning. Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, um, Jesus celebrated a feast with his friends, including the one who betrayed him. And like most things that Jesus does, this moment is just packed with meaning. So what I want to do tonight is to, to slow down the scene a little bit and consider the weight of Jesus' actions. So first, we're going to consider, we're going to flash back in time from the table to the Exodus story that Jesus is participating in. And then we're going to go um, present time to the disciples at the table with Jesus and imagine what they may have been thinking. And then we're going to flash forward because Jesus is also anticipating future hope. Okay, all these things tonight. Back to Exodus with it at the table with Jesus, and then forward. Um, and here's the thing. I don't just want to give you like a dry history lesson. Um, I really hope that at each of our stops, um, we'll find meaning for our present day right here as well. Um, so first, let's talk about the kind of meal that they're eating together. It says they're eating the Passover, but what is that again? What's the Passover? It's this feast that has its origins back in, in Egypt. Um, in Exodus. So I don't want you to turn there. Don't, don't turn there. Just, I'm just going to give you the backstory real quick. So the people, um, how are they doing in, in Egypt? They're doing okay, bad, pretty bad. The Jewish people are slaves in Egypt. And, um, and they cry out to God. And it says God hears their prayers. And he sends them someone to deliver them. He sends them Moses, right? Come on, guys. Be, participate. So Moses. And Moses says to let my people... There we go. Nailed it. Okay, so then Moses says, let people go to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, is he cool with this? No. He's not. He's not cool with this. And so God gives him, God sends 10 plagues. And nine of them are basically like warnings. Because it's got like darkness, gnats, hail, you know, water turned to blood, normal stuff like that. Um, and so not, for nine plagues, God's basically warning, warning Pharaoh. The 10th plague, he really takes the gloves off because this is what he says. He says that <clears throat> he's going to pass through Egypt and take the firstborn of every family unless you, you fall under his means of escape, his refuge, because God always, always provides a means of refuge. This is what he does. He says he's going to promise to pass over every house with a, a lamb's blood on the door. We just read it, but I'm just going to read this again. This is Exodus 12, verse 12 and 13. It says, 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so that's what happens. God's judgment comes, but always with a means of refuge. So then this is what God does. He, this is, he promises, he uh, commands something kind of strange. He commands them to keep this feast every single year. So it really happened at one point, but he says, you always have to go back and remember this. And I think for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that because in some special way, God's character at the Passover was revealed as the God who saves. He's revealed as the God who hears his people, and he's the God who does something. He acts on behalf of his people. And the Passover remembers this, this aspect of God's character that's central to his identity. So he said, don't forget it. Have this feast every single year. Um, because God's, while judgment's going to pass through, um, anyone who comes under the shelter of his wings, like the song we just sang, um, can find refuge and safety. God's nature to save is so important that he commands them to remember his salvation through a yearly feast. This memory of salvation reminds me of something that um, we do today that I see around town. Um, so um, sometimes we go around town, we might see statues of people, right? And, I, and I've noticed specifically statues of um, firefighters. And by the way, I don't think anyone here knows this, I think firefighters are so awesome. Like my son Liam used to be obsessed with firefighters and I always encouraged that because... I think it's such a high calling. Like you go into a burning building to save people, it's incredible. And so um, when, you, when, you, like, when you set up statues or memorials for firefighters, they're always doing what? They're always saving somebody. We would never put up a statue of a guy like tying his shoes or something, you know? They're always, they've got, they're bursting through flames with children in their arms or a guy like over their shoulder or something. I was looking at a bunch of pictures and it's true, like every single statue, they're doing something amazing, they're saving someone. Because saving people is crucial to the job description of a firefighter. It's a, it's a core part of their identity. And so when we put up monuments for them, we remember they're the ones that save. Are you following me so far? So that's exactly what's going on with the Passover celebration. It's this opportunity to remember that God is the one who saves. And so I wonder if we also need to make space in our lives to remember that God is the one who saves us. When we think about God, do we mostly think of him as like far off and unavailable? Or even worse, is he some kind of like bitter taskmaster to you? Is God the one who is asking you to save yourself? It's not true. He's not. He's not. We, do, we honor God when we remember that he's the one that saves us. We open up space in our lives and our hearts to remember God's salvation to us. So now let's go forward a little bit to Jesus and the disciples of the table. So now that we understand the background of the Passover, I want us to look at Jesus' words and just consider how breathtaking these are. At this great meal celebrating God's saving action, Jesus takes bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body. He takes the wine and he says, this is my blood. 
He's taking a feast that's supposed to be about God and making it about himself, which is crazy and heretical and arrogant, unless God has somehow visited his people in the person of Jesus right there, which of course is what's happening. At this exact instant, the sign gets changed from lamb's blood to water to, to um, bread and wine, but it's the same thing because it's Christ's body broken for us. It's Christ's blood shed for us. And so this new sign of bread and wine, it adds a significant layer of meaning because these are things that you eat, you consume bread and wine. Um, so he, he offers them and he says, take and eat. The bread and wine is this physical embodiment of Christ's gift to us. And as I was thinking about bread and wine this week, uh, a story came to mind that a friend of mine um, at our church told me once. He's not here tonight. I called him to ask if, it could, if I could share uh, this, this story. But many of you know that the Thompson family, um, Rachel and Brad, and their, their three sons, Joey, Jerry, and Benji, um, and you might also know that uh, about a, a year, just over a year ago, I guess, a year and a half maybe, um, they experienced a really, really difficult season because um, they lost another son of theirs before he was born. Um, they lost Titus uh, about nine months into the pregnancy. And um, many of you know this family well, you know the story and everything. But I remember shortly after talking to Brad about the first church service he came to after after Titus passed, and he was amazed at how um, what we do here with communion and the bread and the wine took on new meaning for him. This is what he said. Um, he said, and if you know Brad, you can hear his voice saying this. He's such a funny guy. But he said, when I go to take the wine, I've always been a dunker. <laughs> you know, you, you dunk, dunk the, the bread and the, and the juice or the wine. He said, I've always been a dunker. I never sip the wine. But at this moment, I was just a mess, and I was so desperate that I just, when the wine cup passed me, I just grabbed it and took a drink. Um, and he said, I've been a wine sipper ever since. <laughs> um, but I love this story because isn't that how we all should approach Jesus with, with desperate, outstretched hands? That's what he told me. He said, um, I'm just empty-handed. That's all I have. I've, I've got nothing. And that's what we do usually, not during COVID, but usually we go up with two empty hands, right? And uh, you tell me, like, what does this look like? It looks like a beggar, doesn't it? And that's on purpose. It's supposed to look like that. We come to Jesus with nothing but empty hands, and he's so good. He, he fills those empty hands, right? He, he fills us and he sustains us. And so um, I just wonder if, if we have an orientation in our hearts to come to Jesus like a beggar with only open hands because that's all he's asking to receive eternal life, two empty hands. We do this at one time. We begin a walk with Jesus. But the beautiful thing about our tradition is that we do it every week through the table and the bread and the wine. We come with two open hands. I know things are different now. I'll talk about that at the end, but it's the same kind of principle. So our last, our last stop was going to be the longest stop, but I, I was just so amazed by this this week as I was thinking about it. Um, Jesus, at this meal with the disciple, he anticipates this final great feast way in the future. 
Um, because the gift of Jesus' life doesn't just spare us from punishment, but it also allows us to be invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. We just sang a song about it, and I wonder who was like, what's the wedding feast of the Lamb? <laughs> it's, a little bit, it's a little bit like far-fetched. We're going to talk about it for a second. But um, this is what, what he's anticipating, is this final wedding and it might sound strange to you. Just hold me with me for a second. I'm going to read two lines that he says, and we'll talk about what, what he, I think he has in mind. Um, verse 16, Luke 22, 16 says, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And Luke 18 says, For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Okay, so I've always read this and been like, what's he talking about? Like, what, what's going to happen in the future? So on this night, remember, just to refresh us, Jesus is looking backwards to God's past saving actions. And he's also talking about their present situation, what's really going to happen in a few days. But he's also looking forward to when it is fulfilled and the kingdom of God comes. Um, so what is this kingdom of God and when's it coming? Well, the kingdom first begins with Jesus' death and resurrection. Because when, he, when Jesus rises from the dead, and no, I'm not really supposed to talk about that yet because it's not Easter, but, you know, it's part of the story. It's hard to, to avoid. Um, when Jesus rises from the dead, he opens up this resurrection life as a gift to anyone who, who receives it. And so his, his kingdom begins with his, with his death and resurrection, but I don't think I need to convince you that the kingdom isn't fully here yet. We all know, just look around us, we all know the world is still a broken place. The world is not the way it should be. How many times throughout the day do you look at it and just go, it's not the way it should be? We have this deep sense in us that things are still broken and things aren't fixed yet. But Jesus, at this moment, is looking forward to a day when the salva his, his saving work will be complete. Not that it is finished, but he's going like to save. Uh, um, he's going to bring his kingdom fully. When God's good rule, his kingdom, will fill the whole earth. When it says that God's going to wipe away every tear. One British pastor I love says, Jesus is going to return to put the world to rights. Put the world to rights. It's like a British thing to say, but I love it. So the biblical authors use a lot of different images to talk about Jesus' return. One of the most common, one of the most beautiful is that of a wedding. You might remember that Jesus called himself the bridegroom a couple of times, and, and Paul also compares, um, and it's crazy, husbands and wives to Christ and the church. You guys remember that, that scene in uh, Ephesians 5? So, one of my favorite passages that anticipates Christ's return is in Revelation. Imagine that. It's chapter 19. Again, don't, don't turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. Um, I'm going to give you some context. So at this scene in Revelation, John, the author, is seeing a vision of worshiping God of God in heaven. And just like the Passover, they're worshiping God because he has just defeated evil, because he's just saved them. Um, God has just like struck down this like beast, this like horrible symbol of, of pervasive evil in the world. God struck him down. And just like the Passover, look at what they, what they call Jesus. They call him the lamb because he is the lamb after all. He's the Passover lamb that was slain for us and his character is revealed when he saves. So as I read, I want you to consider what it means to be invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. 
what does it mean for us to anticipate the wedding feast as Jesus did? Okay, this is Revelation 9, 6. Again, don't worry about turning there. Um, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. I, if the angel said it to me, I'd definitely write that down. <laughs> Slow down, let me say it again. So this is where he says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so this is a crazy vision, and it combines like a lot of ideas. Because at first, the church is depicted as like a whole, um, the church that like, collectively is depicted as the bride of Christ. But then at the end, it's like those who are invited. So at the end, it's more of an individual focus. So I think the point, the point I'm trying to say is that we're not looking at like video footage of heaven. Um, I, I don't think, maybe, I don't think we're actually going like, to walk down an aisle to Jesus. I think we're supposed to get from this is, is actually much, much deeper and richer because the image of a wedding is supposed to resonate with us at a really deep level. So let's just, just contemplate how beautiful this wedding might be for a second. What does it mean for us to anticipate Jesus' return in the same way we anticipate weddings? How would our lives look different if we were so fixed on this future hope? One way to think about this might be, what are the other little hopes that we think about that get in the way of this? Instead of looking to, um, to, to Jesus' return as the ultimate solution, how many little solutions we look toward? Do we think, ah, when the vaccine gets around, right? That's going to be the solution. The vaccine's fine, but it's not the ultimate solution. A new president, or when things get back to normal, which I love that, because who knows? Things get back to what is normal? Or maybe it's the next phase of life for you. Maybe it's, ah, oh, when I finally get to high school, when I finally get to college, when I finally meet the guy or girl of my dreams, when we can have kids, when I get the right job, when I can retire. You see what I'm saying? Like we put all our hopes in these little, little tiny goals that aren't the one big wedding feast that we have to look forward to. Um, do we forget that the true wedding is still yet to come? If all of your dreams haven't been broken yet in 2020, 2021, let me just remind you that all of these little hopes are for sure going to let you down. Here's the good news, though, because God's plans for the world will be fulfilled. The wedding is still on. We all need this reminder, don't we? We need to, to often remember the wedding is still on. A wedding feast awaits those who are willing to wait for it. The wedding feast awaits those who are willing to wait for it. But what does that mean? Why is Jesus' return such good news? As an act, I, I thought about this a lot this week, and I had like six reasons why Jesus' return is going to be great. And, and then I just threw it away because I was like, there's no reason to systemize this. You know, the Bible gives us a beautiful image of a wedding, and maybe it's just better for us to 
Just picture that and let the, the image sink into us. So as an act of worship and meditation, I'm going to read um, a reading from one of this book I've, loved, I've grown to love called Every Moment Holy. And uh, it's a collection of liturgies, which is basically like readings at um, different occasions. And this one is called A Liturgy for Feasting with Friends. I'm not going to read the whole thing, ju just part of it. And as I read, I want us to consider what it might look like for us to constantly center our gaze back on the final wedding that is to come. Okay, it says, A Liturgy for Feasting with Friends. To gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair. For feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken are, at their heart, acts of war. In celebrating this feast, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word. May this shared meal and our pleasure in it bear witness against the artifice and deceptions of the prince of darkness that would blind this world to hope. May this, our feast, fall like a great hammer blow against that brittle night, shattering the gloom, awakening our hearts, stirring our imaginations, focusing our vision on the kingdom that is to come, on the kingdom that is promised, and on the kingdom that is already indeed among us. For the resurrection of all good things has already joyfully begun. May this feast be an echo of the great supper of the Lamb, a foreshadowing of that great celebration that awaits the children of God. Like I said, God's plans for the world, world will be fulfilled. The wedding is still on for those who are eagerly waiting. The question is, are we letting the Spirit train us to look forward to God's plan for the world? Do we have the wedding in mind? Is it firmly fixed as a future hope? And that's what the table here is all about, actually. This is a physical, tangible reminder that we've got so much to look forward to. And um, I know this is not normal during COVID, right? Because we're not even eating real bread, but like poker chips, right? And we're not even like drinking like a cup. We're having this little like coffee creamer sized crinkly plastic cup. Um, but maybe the fact that everything is so off and so weird right now can um, remind us to look forward to a day when it won't always be so. Maybe as we drink our awkward little tiny cup, we can remember that one day we'll be feasting with our Savior. Because when we find ourselves, when we sit in the unsatisfaction of our lives here, it can train us to look for the time that we'll be fully satisfied. Use this moment as a reminder to turn your hearts towards your God who gave his son to save you. Aim your heart towards Christ's return, the wedding of heaven and earth, when he will wipe away every tear. And pray for us. Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. We long to see you. I pray that you would um, awaken our hearts to look for you more than anything else. Teach us how useless the things we look to instead of you are. And teach us how substantial and beautiful you are. And um, I pray that you would 
you would train us to look to you above all else. That we would be actually unsatisfied in this world knowing that one day we will be satisfied with you. I pray this in the name of your son. Amen.